You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles now. Scripture reading will be from Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46, and also 2 Peter 3, verse 10 to 13. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's turn to 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look toward, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The text for the sermon is 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. The sermon which I'm going to read was prepared by the Reverend J. DeGelder. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, all Christians believe that Jesus will return. But there is a great variety in ideas as to how and when that will happen. The Bible does not teach that he will come in different stages. That already shows the bad theology behind the popular left-behind books. There will be one day of judgment for everyone. But what kind of day is this going to be then? What will happen? Well, one thing is clear. Although there will be no spectacular signs that will allow you to see it coming ahead of time, the day itself will not pass by unnoticed. On the contrary, it will be a very spectacular event. In Luke 17, Jesus told us that the Son of Man will come like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And yet, brothers and sisters, many times it seems so unreal and is often so far from your daily life. When I ask catechism students, are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? They all say, yes, we do because they know that's what they're supposed to say and what the minister wants to hear. But when I keep asking, is that so? Do you really mean that? How often do you think, I wish that the Lord Jesus would come back now or tomorrow? Most of them will admit that is not such a living desire. We are so tied up here, you know. We're not done yet. We want to finish this first. And then there is something else. You just graduated and you want to go to high school or college or university. Or you finished your studies and you're looking forward to a job. Or you're just married and you like to enjoy life with your spouse and have children. Or you are older and you would love to see your grandchildren grow up. Are these desires wrong and selfish? No, they're not. But we have the idea sometimes that we would lose the things and the people we love when Jesus returns. And what do we gain? I haven't heard a lot of people say, I hope and pray that the Lord Jesus may come back soon. Only when somebody had to cope with something difficult and troublesome problem. What about the people in Thessalonica? you get the impression from both letters that they were really busy with these matters in this congregation. In the midst of their difficult circumstances, they were looking forward to a change. Well, this change will come, Paul says in our text. That's a matter of justice, because that's what God has promised. This afternoon we'll see that the day of Christ's return will show that God is just. First, in the manner of His return, Second, in the punishment at his return. Third, in the glorification in his return. 
Congregation, the two letters to the Thessalonians are most likely the oldest epistles we have from the Apostle Paul. When he wrote these letters, he was still working in the city of Corinth. That was during his second missionary journey. You'll find the story of this journey in Acts 16, 17, and 18. During this trip, Paul and his helpers have worked for only a short time in Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia in the northern part of Greece. That he could only work there for such a short period of time, perhaps just a few weeks, was because of the hostile resistance of the Jews. They caused a lot of uproar and turmoil in the city, and Paul and Silas were forced to flee. Then, via Athens, Paul ends up in Corinth, where he stays and works for about a year and a half. Well, Soon after his arrival in Corinth, Paul got some news from Thessalonica that he, and he wrote his first letter. He wanted to encourage and also to warn this young and vulnerable congregation. Then only a few months, or perhaps about a half year later, he wrote his second letter. In this letter, he deals specifically with questions around the Christian hope and expectation for the future, matters related to the return of Jesus Christ. Paul has many reasons to be thankful for the developments in the church of Thessalonica. I've heard, he says, that your faith is growing more and more, and that the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. That's wonderful news, of course, especially if you keep in mind that these brothers and sisters had heard the gospel for such a short time. At the same time, it is really tough for them. They suffer as they endure persecutions and trials. They do show perseverance and faith in these trials, but it's not always easy for them to hang on to their trust that God is indeed faithful and just. But Paul urges them not to give up because God is just, he says. What an encouraging expression this is, congregation, especially if you realize that in God's justice, we don't have to do with some merciless rigidness from a God who demands perfection and doesn't know the word grace. No, that God is just refers to his faithfulness, the fact that he is faithful to his promises, that he keeps his word as he spoke in the covenant relationship with his people. Don't give up because you can trust him, says Paul to his suffering brothers and sisters. See, in this relationship with his people, God works and keeps working toward peace and salvation. That's where you learn to trust God. This justice or righteousness is already present in the Old Testament. In times of trouble and distress, God's people may call upon God's righteousness. Deliver me in your righteousness and come to my rescue, Lord, in Psalm 31 and 71. And so you may expect salvation. You may count on it as God's children. You can trust him. He is just. How encouraging in difficult times, brothers and sisters, that you may know God is just. The great king guarantees the protection and salvation of all the citizens of his kingdom. But this guarantee has also other effects. That he saves and protects implies that there are also others, enemies. And they will be punished. His liberation is liberation from oppressors, which will involve retribution. That will be unavoidable. 
The strong emphasis on God's love, grace, and mercy do not make him easily gloss over the seriousness of sin. And so God's liberating and saving justice is at the same time also his punishing justice. As Paul puts it in her text, it is just that God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. These things are connected, of course. By troubling those who trouble you, you, as troubled, will be relieved. What a marvelous surprise this will be, congregation. God's promises, God promises that he himself will turn everything in your life completely upside down. As believers in this world, you can feel sometimes that more and more you are driven into a corner. At times, Christians face violent persecution. But even if there is nothing like that, you will still be under attack of all kinds of other tricks of the devil. Trouble all over. But you will be saved from that when those who trouble you will get into trouble themselves. That's what God is going to grant to you with us Paul says, in this, with us, he stresses a strong bond between the Thessalonians and himself. They must know that his encouragement is not just a matter of nice, but easy words from someone who is safely sitting on the fence. No, no, he identifies with those suffering brothers and sisters. Their relief will be relief for him because their troubles because by their troubles, he is also troubled. It sounds promising, brothers and sisters. However, it is good to realize that we will see this justice of God on the day that Jesus returns. Until that day, there will always be a lot of injustice to deal with in this world. Many things in your life cannot be straightened out here. Until that day, Christ's church will always be a suffering church. Oh, sure, we know that Christ rules, protects, and guides us by his Holy Spirit, even now. But that's a matter of faith. You don't see it, you just believe. But this will change. Jesus is coming as a judge. We have read from Matthew 25 how he will appear and how he is going to apply this divine justice in this world. He'll separate the people as a sheep from the goats and he will patiently explain to them what the reason is for this separation. He works toward his final judgment, eternal life, or eternal punishment. Yes, congregation, even in the manner of Jesus' return, will show that God is indeed just, that he will be faithful in keeping his promises. First of all, in the fact that his return is referred to as revelation, he will be revealed. After Jesus arose, he ascended into heaven. In faith, we acknowledge and confess the great and wonderful glory Jesus has with his Father. Although you cannot see it, it is there. He rules with royal power, although today his glorious majesty is hidden with God. It still is, but it won't stay there. It will come to light. It will be revealed. After that, after all, that's what Revelation is all about, right? You get to see and hear in public what was hidden and kept secret for a long time. And that will have a remarkable effect. Since Jesus' glory is hidden, 
Many people are able to deny his power and care, and they do. Many reject and refuse to accept that God is just, and they seem to have a point, for you don't see anything, not yet. But all this will drastically change when the Lord Jesus is revealed, when he will come out in the open as he really is, when he will appear as a powerful conqueror. But how will that be? Will this be clear enough for everyone? Or will people still be able to ignore it or explain it as natural phenomena? Listen to Paul as he describes this moment in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the apostle Peter speaks about a loud roar and a destructive fire. Our text talks about the manner of Jesus' return in a similar way. Brothers and sisters, three impressive hallmarks are mentioned. First, that he is coming from heaven. Heaven is the place where he shared in God's glory after his ascension. That's where his disciples saw him go. So to be revealed from there means that everyone will see him coming in royal glory, clothed with divine authority. This is underlined by the fact that he will be accompanied by his powerful angels, his royal heavenly court, his faithful servants, ready to execute his judgment. And the last aspect is that he will appear in blazing fire. Throughout the Bible, you'll find many times that God reveals his holy presence in fire. Think of the burning bush in Exodus 3.2 and his appearance at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Sometimes it turns into a destructive fire. Listen to Isaiah in 66.15. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirl. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men. What a tremendous surprise this return will be, full of unmistakable signals for this whole world. The last thing this world has seen of him was a suffering and dying Jesus on the cross. But on that day, all the mockery and disdain will come to a sudden end. Everyone will acknowledge that God is indeed just. In the following verses of our text, the apostle elaborates on what is going to happen, on what is mentioned in verse 6 and 7, as paying back trouble to those who trouble you and giving relief to those who are troubled. The Lord Jesus is coming and everyone will be confronted with his judgment. That's why we know this day as judgment day, for God will give to each person according to what he has done. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, 6, which he underlines by saying in verse 11 that God does not show favoritism. That means also that no one will be able to sneak out as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for all the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This coming judgment will bring division. There is no doubt about that, and you won't be able to hide and get away with it. No one will. Sometimes people wonder, brothers and sisters, does this division not already occur right after you die? Or are we going to be judged twice? And if so, 
Is this second judgment not more or less fake then? That doesn't make sense, does it? Because it is hard to imagine that the outcome will be different from the first time. While it is true and it is important that you don't overlook that, your life here and now will decide where you will spend eternity. So in that sense, the division is there already, right after your death. But having said that, you also need to know that God saves or condemns people, body and soul, not just souls. But in the interim, right after your death and before the day of your resurrection, there is only your soul. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your soul will be with Him and enjoy His presence. But if not, your soul will not be with Him. But in the meantime, all these souls are waiting for the day that the dead will rise and the souls will be reunited with the bodies. This will then also be the day of the public session of the heavenly court, the day of the public sentence, guilty or not guilty. And it will also be the day of the public execution of this sentence, acquittal, freedom, eternal life, or condemnation, eternal death. It will be the day of the public demonstration that God is just. Compare it with a man accused of murder who is imprisoned awaiting trial. He himself knows already whether he is guilty or not. But since there is no public judgment, no public sentence yet, it is not clear for others that justice will be done. Back to our text now, congregation, where in 8 and 9, Paul speaks first about eternal punishment. That's not an easy or attractive topic to deal with. No one likes it. It reflects the gloomy tone of some of the prophets in the Old Testament, like, for instance, Jeremiah and Hosea, or the tones of some of the Psalms that picture how God is going to judge and to punish his enemies. When he comes in blazing fire, he will punish. That's God's justice. The hostile powers that resist him will be terminated by the consuming and destroying power of this blazing fire of Jesus Christ. Realize, brothers and sisters, how easily Jesus receives the same features that were reserved for God the Father in the Old Testament. As Jesus himself says in John 5, the Father has given him authority to judge. Keep in mind, brothers and sisters, that this punishment is a matter of justice and not of hateful revenge. It comes on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These were not two different groups that were causing the problems for the congregation in Thessalonica. No, it is the same group. The refusal to know God is ultimately the same as the refusal to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, re- if you reject His gospel, this word of life, then you don't get to know God's love because of your disobedience. This goes to show, congregation, that Jesus' return is not just for the personal vindication of you who are troubled. There is also more at stake than your liberation, your own freedom as believers. No, no, God's own honor. That's the issue at stake here. God will set the record straight for the eternal glorification of His name. That is not just a little thing. You can see it right away. Unbelief has terrible consequences, far-reaching consequences eternal consequences. 
The apostle describes it as a punishment of everlasting destruction. And you can take that just literally, this word, everlasting. The Bible is talking about a lasting punishment. That's pretty hard for us to imagine, brothers and sisters. It is horrible. How can this be compatible with God's love? Some have tried to escape this incomprehensible seriousness by stating that it speaks about total annihilation. But the Bible does not go into that direction. Just like eternal life stands for knowing God and Jesus Christ and to be with the Lord forever, so eternal destruction stands for being shut out from the presence of the Lord. This means the absolute loss of everything that has any value, everything that makes life worth living, everything that is pleasant, everything that can give any comfort. It will be gone forever. When this total and absolute separation from God becomes reality, without any saving light or strength available, life becomes a total disaster and utter ruin. That will never end. Again, congregation, it's impossible for us to fathom the frightening depth of this eternal punishment. But then, rather than trying to grasp the frightening seriousness of this eternal destruction, this scary perspective should make us realize even more how important it is that we do know God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and that we do obey the gospel of our Lord, Jesus Don't ignore, don't neglect this in your life, brothers and sisters. Be aware at all times that it is your daily life today, here and now, that will make all the difference forever. Recognize the gospel of Jesus as God's final word to man, also to us. You can believe this message. You can reject this message. You can keep it on hold for a while and then forget it. But whatever you do with it, the consequences will last forever. Congregation, more and other things will happen on this day of Christ's return. In verse 7, the apostle speaks also about relief to be given to you who are troubled. Persecuted and suffering believers will become glorified with Jesus Christ. Do you see the parallel? If you refuse to know God, you will end up permanently separated from God. And if you want to know God and to believe in His Son, Jesus, you will be granted the privilege to be with Him and to see Him permanently. Indeed, you will get what you wanted. John writes, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul describes how those who belong to Jesus Christ will meet Him on the day of His return. And so we will be with the Lord forever, he concludes. Yes, it's even stronger, brothers and sisters. The goal of Christ's return is ultimately for Jesus Christ to be glorified in His holy people on that day. They are the people that believe in Him and belong to Him. He has bought them and made them holy with His precious blood. In faith, you may live in this reality. Yes, in faith, you may know His glory now already. But then when He is there, then everyone may see and hear the wonderful reality, how the divine judge publicly declares you free from guilt in your Savior Jesus Christ, and how he is going to make you share in his glory. 
This is so exciting. As children of God, you'll be filled with the holy glory of Jesus Christ so completely that you can only praise and glorify Him with astonishment. Yes, congregation, the promised return of the Lord Jesus serves this goal, that His glory becomes visible in the lives of all God's children. What a great and wonderful perspective that is. Imagine your glorified Savior in the midst of His singing and rejoicing church. Do you want to be part of that? Your salvation, your joy, your life, that will be His glory. For there will be no salvation, no joy, and no life for you without His suffering, death and resurrection. No one else but He is worthy to be marveled at, to be looked at with deep reverence and awe. Then it will become visible what your faith in Jesus Christ has done in your life. What its glorious effect is in your life. How it allows you to enter eternal life on a new earth, the home of righteousness. How astounding, how magnificent, brothers and sisters, how dazzling your glorification as God's children reflects the glory of the holy God himself. And the Apostle Paul adds then with the comforting assurance for the Thessalonians in their troubles, it is for all who have believed, and this includes you, because you have believed our testimony. Only because of your faith in the testimony of Jesus Christ, you can go ahead and face the coming day of the Lord without any fear. Jesus Christ will return and show that God is just, so there is nothing to be scared of. It's going to be a beautiful day, a wonderful day, a day to look forward to, the very best of all the days in your life. That day will answer your questions, the day that will put an end to all your worries. That day will take away your pain. The day that angels and people together are going to do what they were supposed to do since the very beginning of the creation, worship and praise forever and ever. See, brothers and sisters, all this leaves you now with what will turn out to be the most important question to be answered on that day. Did you keep your faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to hear about that one day of judgment when your Son, Christ Jesus, will return. As you have promised in your word, we thank you for this gospel, for this good news. We pray that we may be encouraged in whatever happens to us by the fact that you are faithful to the promises you have given to us in your word. Father, it is so exciting that as believers we will one day be filled with the holy glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that our faith in Christ will be strong as we move toward that great day when he returns. In his name we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.